Hello and welcome to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia. My name is Juma McGowan. I'm a dyslexic, I'm an actor and a writer, and now I'm a podcaster. This podcast is to support the incredible work of the Dyslexia Foundation, whose mission is to unlock the full potential of children and adults with dyslexia so that they can succeed and contribute fully to society. They do incredible work. They test any adult off the street and teach them to read for free. Everything is free at the point of use. My guest this week is the poet, Philip Schultz. Born in Rochester, New York in 1945, the Pulitzer Prize winning poet and founder director of the Writer's Studio didn't acknowledge himself as dyslexic until his son was diagnosed. His schooling was a struggle. He has said at that time, being given up on is a very peculiar feeling. One of the many heartbreaking memories he recounts in his memoir from 2011, My Dyslexia, is one of his teachers telling him to look at the pictures and just sit there, pretending you're reading. As a child, he couldn't imagine his life ever amounting to anything. Who else but the crazy expects so much from so little, he asks. His dyslexia caused great distress at home and in the classroom. It's very important, he says, for kids who struggle in anything to find a direction that will comfort them. For me, my imagination was a great place to escape from all the anxiety and disapproval in my life. It led me to art and then to writing, and that gave me a kind of community. And I suddenly bonded with others who wanted to do that. It's not surprising, he said, that a lot of dyslexics find their way into art and science. Despite his many successes, writing and reading still cause him great anxiety, but the determination and compassion he developed as a result of his dyslexia are key components to his successes. I wanted to speak to Philip because he is a poet, an artist, who has made his successes, made his career on words, but words and language for him can be an incredibly anxiety-inducing experience to sit and write. So that relationship was fascinating for me and I wanted to ask him about it. And he talks about it in the pod. Talking to Philip, my, my biggest takeaway was compassion. Compassion feeds him in his poetry, but it also feeds him as a teacher, being compassionate towards his students and their processes and how that leads to the development of empathy. In the course of our conversation, I learned about the similarities between developing young writers and poets at the writer's studio, his, his studio in New York, and also developing actors. There were things that we talked about in the course of the conversation that were similar to, to my development as an actor, and I found that really interesting. Hi, Philip. Welcome. Welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, yes. No, it's a pleasure. I've been looking forward to it. I would love to kick us off, if you don't mind, I'd like to take us to 1977. Now, I, I'm going to assume, were you, were you back in, in New York from San Fran at that time in 77? In 76, I came to New York after spending yes. three years in Boston, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Right. Okay. Well, what I, I'm, I'm personally fascinated by New York at that time because of, I mean, culturally, it's huge, massive, you know, the advent of disco and hip hop and punk bands and poetry and, and literature. So I would love, as someone who is an artist, to hear that lived in experience was. What was that like? Give me an idea of, of what an exciting, I mean, dangerous time it was. Well, for me, much of it was trying to make a living. I, I had been teaching in Boston at UMass for three years. And I decided to give all that up and come to New York because I wanted to be in New York without a job. 
It isn't what writers, poets normally did. They usually went where the job was, and I just wanted to go where I wanted to live. Yes. And I met in Boston and found teaching jobs after driving a cab (laughs) for a while. (laughs) But in New York, a lot was going on. There were a lot of organizations like Poets in the Schools and Poets and Writers just starting, and uh, they helped writers in my rather indigent um, position get started and I had various jobs and until I started to teach at NYU in 78. Yes. Basically created the graduate writing program as I went along as a way of making a job for myself (laughs) in the middle of Greenwich Village that uh, there should be a writing program there and there wasn't at the time. Wow, that's amazing to think that it didn't have, at that time, a, a creative writing um, course. So did that time in any way, was it inspiring? Did, did it feed your creativity as, as a poet, or were, were you more concerned with the realities of earning a living? It was mostly a struggle to, to get by. Entering New York, New York can, can appear to be a kind of fortress to people from the outside. You're not just visiting, you're setting up a whole life. I was 30, 31 years old. And in a way, you you have to recreate yourself. I I was a poet who also attempted to write fiction. The poetry was successful, the fiction wasn't. I knew basically three people. Fortunately, they were good people. and, um, And through them, I met many more. I had met John Cheever, for instance, the writer at a artist colony, uh, Yaddo, in Saratoga Springs a couple of years before. So he introduced me to various people, and that was very helpful. Grace Shulman, the poet I had met also at Yaddo, and through her, I met various people. It was exciting. I, I, I don't think I was part of the music scene. I knew it was going on. And I I, I try to familiarize myself with it, but I, I there wasn't a lot of time for recreation. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is New York. Well, you know, you're a Londoner. Yeah. Entering London at the age of 30 isn't going to be easy. <laughs> no. There's a poetry society, but it was somewhat closed until you found the right door through which you could enter it. My first way of talking about that is I, I didn't find it exciting. The excitement for me always lay pretty much in my work. And I mean, I was in the 60s in San Francisco with the transition between the beat scene and the hippie scene mm. and living on Haight Street. Oh, amazing. Starting a as a way of also getting free coffee and lunches. I started a, a reading at a little at a little coffee house on a hate street called Ayan Dao by a ex Hasid from Brooklyn who liked Martin Buber. And uh, that I did it as a way of, you know, thinking I could get my fellow students from San Francisco State was the largest undergraduate writing program in the country. That everyone wanted to be in San Francisco. And there were many students and teachers and wonderful teachers go. So I thought that it would be a good idea. And I did it for really just to help get by as a part-time job. And almost overnight, it became a huge reading series because 
the hate street exploded. Yeah. So you had people like Allen Ginsberg, <laughs> Michael McClure, Robert Duncan showing up, not only to read, but to listen to it. So I tr- stumbled my way into something like that. I guess looking back, one could say it was exciting. But <laughs> again, you, you no, no doubt know this. That there's a certain degree of selfishness or selfhood yes. that one has to maintain as a writer. And you're part of things and you're not part of things. Yeah, I know you, you'll have to forgive me. My, my rose-tinted romantic glasses in, in 2020 uh, attempted to romanticize about a time that obviously I know nothing about, but we've unintentionally stumbled into, well, I mean, that, you know, Allen Ginsberg, Hate Street, that scene. I mean, I know you say it probably wasn't as exciting as, a, as, it, as it could have been, but please tell us, tell us about that. That is equally fascinating, if not more so. Well, when I get, when I get older, I guess memory is more attracted to something even farther back. Oh, let's go. Well, I guess I'm talking about it now because it it so reminds me of this time. Great. There was a revolution going on, and I was one of them. I was trying to stay out of the war. Yes. And the campus I was on was the center of it all. In many ways, Berkeley, yes, for free speech, but San Francisco State, was where SDS, the Students for a Democratic Society, started. And there were protests almost every day. And you had um, the National Guard down, and um, all the professors were involved in it, and the police on the campus. And so there was an awful lot of that going on, and protests, and Hay Street became the center for most of the protests. It, 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 it ended with Golden Gate Park. Yes. And often many of the protests were in the park and they would start in the park and walk down Hay Street. So it was an exciting time and it reminds me of the protests going on now. For anyone, for anyone who hasn't seen it, dear listener, um, the Vietnam War by um, Ken Burns, which is a 10 part, 10 hour series. You think you can see it on Netflix is for me one of the greatest documentaries I've ever seen, but it has some incredible footage. I mean, it has people narrating it from, you know, from the Marines to um, the people who demonstrated against the the war. And it has uh, South Vietnamese and North Vietnamese, but it has amazing footage of the student uh, protests, which as I'm sure you have, you've seen Black Lives Matter protests going on and Antifa, and you've seen what people are doing in Seattle. And you've also seen, you know, all the police violence and brutality, you know, it's, it's that thing of there's nothing new under the sun. The history repeats itself. And what an amazing time, really. Yes, that was a period of history that I think is um, reliving itself in this moment because this moment seems equally pivotal. Yes, absolutely. It, it's, it's so strange that there are, there are points in any century there are, there are huge flare-ups of, of political activity. There was like two or three in the 20th century, and this is, feels like the big one now, you know, starting with Brexit here and Trump in America. Yes. Well, I'm fully aware that, you know, <laughs> going into the Trump Brexit uh, thing is, is a whole different podcast. <laughs> Talk about a fortress. Yeah. <laughs> but it, but it's, it's, it's sort of unavoidable, you know, and as you say, like it's going to be woven into people's understanding of, of this time and, and why uh, there's, it's so tumultuous. Yes. I have two sons. One's 24 and it just finished his first year of law school. Wow. And the other's 20. 
and in the middle of college and deciding whether or not to return because the school being only partially open will make any sense. Yeah. So I'm kind of experiencing, I, I was 20 when I got to San Francisco, so I'm reliving that experience through their eyes. Both of them are political and very much of the moment. And, you know, when you care, when you care about what's going on, it forms its own kind of politics. Yeah. It's compassion or some sense of what's right and wrong. Yes. Is a kind of political field all by itself. I think I see this whole generation coming into its own now. I think for me, the most moving of all is to see the diversity of these protests and how committed their generation is to change. Yes. And there was no stopping it back in the 60s. There, there was no stopping us. Uh, the, 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 the eyes of the National Guard and the police said as much. They, they understood the um, urgency and the passion was just so overwhelming. And that's what it is now. Yeah. And there, there will be, the Trumps will be just brushed aside. You just can't withstand that kind of passion. And when you feel, when, when you have right behind you, that, that is, a, it becomes a tidal wave. For sure. In fairness, in the 60s, with the civil rights, you, you had young Jewish students who were doing the sit-ins and, and, and marching with their brothers and sisters in the, you know, the, the black community. And I think there is something about when all peoples come together, you know, the, the, the many diverse people of America to affect change, then, as you say, it's, it's irresistible. Just to see the faces of these people in the protest, all people of every age. And I, I'm here in East Hampton, New York. And, you know, during the, there were several protests and I'm, you know, older. So I have to keep some social distance and whatever. And I would stand on the sidelines more than March just to see the faces and uh, the ages and the diversity is so, you know, it's just, it's almost as if the link between the time and in terms of history, it's a short time from the sixties to now, but in terms of one, one's life, it's youth and older age. <laughs> it, it's quite a territory to cross, For sure. but it's almost like one thing led to the other. It almost feels that way. Just the, the incredible amount of, technological advancement in that time as well is, is mind-blowing. It completely, as you say, informs what's happening now, almost, what, 50, 50 years on? Yes. From the, the start of civil rights. Also, just this time of uncertainty that uh, to see also that these young men have to deal with and how everything that during this plague, how frightening it is and how it casts everything else in a special light. It doesn't. Today, I was I was reading a bit of Frankenstein, and I was doing a bit of research around it. Frankenstein, wow. <laughs> I digress slightly, but my, my, so my love of audio really came from Christopher Lee reading um, the gothic novels, Dracula, Frankenstein, Hunchback of Notre Dame, and Frankenstein was my favourite, and it was written in 1816, and it was written when Mary Shelley and Byron and Shelley, the poet, rule in Geneva on holiday and there was a huge volcanic eruption in Indonesia which essentially caused snow in June and it was the coldest June, July, August in, in the northern hemisphere. It had this huge knock-on effect but what it basically meant was they were on holiday in Geneva telling ghost stories to each other because it was so dark in June or July <laughs> and, and you know there's all this hypothesizing about you know would if that hadn't happened would we have had um, Frankenstein at all 
But around that time, you've got the year before was Waterloo. Uh, people are starting to talk about slavery being dismantled. A couple of years later in England, there's a, a massacre called the Peterloo Massacre, which was a right. It was it was a call for universal suffrage for everyone, for work for the working man and the police. Essentially, they'd just been invented in England, the police force. And they went up on trains to Manchester and they, they committed this massive massacre. In effect, what I'm trying to get to is that, as I said, there are times in every century where circumstances contribute to huge upheaval and changes and it, and it forms, you know, great art happens. So I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm looking at this time and thinking there's going to be some incredible music and, and literature, poetry that comes about because of all this, this upheaval. I mean, you, you were alive at a time when Bob Dylan was coming out with his greatest stuff and, and Marvin Gaye. And so I'm, I'm very jealous of that. Yeah, yeah, now, I can relate to that. Now, music, when I think of music and change that came out of upheaval, it's the 60s in San Francisco. I don't relate as well to the 70s in New York. Yes. Uh, but yes, I mean, you would go to the Avalon or the Fillmore, the dance clubs, and they would have a debut of the White Album. And you would have Lennon and McCarthy on speaker talking and addressing and introducing the songs. I'm not kidding. You couldn't walk down the street without hearing new music. I, there was a, a little band called It's a Beautiful Day. And one of the elite singer was uh, in, in one of my writing classes and asked me to write music for one of the songs to give him a poem he liked. And he turned it into one of the songs. So even if you're atonal and not very musical, as I am, can't carry a tune, you're some then were forced into that world, like it or not. <laughs> it was all going on all around you. And yes, it was wonderful. Dylan was kind of like the guide. We would like listen to his music and know what to do next. <laughs> yeah. And, and yes, and now too, I, I agree with your point that it should be interesting because for one reason the intense focus that comes out of all of this we're all homebound yeah i'm having to you know go over a, a book and edit an edited book and what should have taken a shorter time is now taking longer because i'm finding i'm making a lot of changes that i wouldn't have made that i didn't make in in the earlier versions right that the kind of focus that's going on now on one hand, it's exhausting, and the remote teaching is difficult. Well, well let me let me say this. One of the things I'm, I, you know, I, I run a school uh, uh, for for creative writing that I now thirty three, going on the thirty fourth year. Yes, the writer studio, and in my classes, I find by doing them by remote that because of what's going on, people seem to be more afraid of what's going outside and what's going inside and and therefore things they weren't able to do or places they weren't able to go emotionally they now are so i've had more breakthroughs during this period of time in the last five months it's summer and it's off now but then i people are are hitting their stride and I think this intense focus is an example of what you're saying, that we're going to see many examples of it in all the arts. So fascinating. I find that so fascinating, the, the internal expansiveness that is coming because of people's inability to be outside. That's really, really fascinating. I mean, I'm, I'm an actor and I've, I've developed a couple of 
uh, scenes and characters in, in lockdown. And I would probably agree, like there's, there's an emotional depth being, I think any form of artist, you need a level of access to emotion. That's, that's what artists do. They sharpen themselves, their emotional tools to, to, to have access to things and have them almost under the skin ready. And it's, it's certainly, I've found like I've been a bit more available to certain emotions or to thinking about things. So that's fascinating that you found that as well. And, and you found that with your students. We all become chroniclers, you know, almost involuntarily. There's a emerging that goes on. I'm, I'm only, only understanding this now as we speak. There's emerging between what's going on outside and what's going on inside. And we have to create new resources as a way of dealing with the kind of fear. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, underlying conditions um, and I'm older. I have to be careful. My wife and kids are careful for me, but uh, you still participate. So there's a kind of merging between what's going on inside in this new edition. It's supposed to be a last edit that I'm doing. I'm finding that I'm dealing with material I've never been able to deal with before. So what I found in my classes, I'm finding in myself. And something that maybe I thought about or wanted to deal with material, going back to when I was young, that maybe indirectly served as inspiration, now directly serves as inspiration. And I'm sure it has a lot to do, is influenced by what's going on around us. Yeah. The fear, the internal focus. So, yes, I think it will demonstrate itself. It'll be another form of revolution. Yeah. What I really want to ask you, and this is what infinitely fascinates me when talking to an artist, is how you approach or, uh, and maintain creative flow. So, you know, reading your book, My Dyslexia, you talk about needing to sort of exercise a bit of anxiety before you start, you know, play a few games of solitaire. Is that still something that, that you do in order to, to put you into that state of creative creative flow? Or has that changed somewhat since uh, since nine years ago? Well, it's it's interesting. You, you know, I, I have to just be, to give you a fact. I didn't know that I was dyslexic until my son, you know, from reading a book, was diagnosed with it in when he was in second grade. And I was shocked because it, it, the, the diagnosis explained my whole life. <laughs> and so I realized that, I mean, there was a great relief that it, I wasn't dumb. There, there was a, a reason. I mean, I always had proof to the fact that I wasn't dumb. Yes. But some part of me remained unconvinced. <laughs> All the, the evidence was never as convincing as I would w wished it were. I know that feeling, yes. <laughs> the school that I run is based on the notion of recognizing, if I could use the word, that there's such a thing as a shitbird. A black friend of mine who struggled with confidence and whatever, and so came to it, gave me that word. He called it a little bird perches on his shoulder and tells him that whatever he's working on, he was a poet and a musician, a great jazz musician, that it wouldn't amount to anything. Yes. And I and others, I met him in Iowa. He was the most brilliant poet there. So... I took that word, the shitbird word, um, not knowing I was dyslexic and that I had to fight with confidence and feelings of being stupid and not fitting in all my life. And I later 
left a teaching job and started my own school, which was all based on helping people recognize that negative force and how they have a lifelong battle to overcome that kind of negativity. And every the beginning of all creativity is often a kind of war, an inner struggle between the part of you that wants to create and contribute and say something and feel you have a right and uh, have something, in fact, to say, and all those feelings of negativity. In my case, it was the long history of, you know, being kicked out of two schools and held back and being in a dummy class. Yes. But all artists, all humans, to some extent, have that struggle. It wasn't until writing this book that I understood where I started the school, which, of course, was the least most impractical thing I ever did. <laughs> I mean, I, I had a tenure job in California offered and it would have been secure and all of that. And I chose to do something, start from scratch with a few classes that didn't make a dime for several years. Yeah. And every single friend I had advised me not to, including the shrink I was seeing at the time. And I never fully understood what what compelled me to to do such a foolhardy thing. And I think now I do, I know. Can I guess to to what that thing might be? I mean, I've you know, having read your book, you stress that compassion was something that your dyslexia gave you in terms of as a poet, having that capacity to to feel compassion is from what I can gather from your book, so important. And if you can help other people who struggled in the way you struggled, then you, you can assist them into being to being more receipt of themselves, to understand themselves more as 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 people, as artists and as as poets. Is that is that something close to it or am I completely off? No, and actually this is turning out to be for me a very valuable conversation because um, I'm now understanding that this internal war that I'm struggle between feelings of, of feeling entitled to do something and feeling that I'm not meant that I had to, winning meant feeling some compassion for myself. Yes. Winning meant stepping back from my own struggle and turning self-denial and hatred almost into celebration. Yeah. Out of which all the writing always came. Yeah. In a sense, the compassion comes from having compassion for myself. And that leads to empathy for others and identifying with the struggle of others. You know, we'll, we mentioned before when we were starting, when I was in Liverpool, I um, saw your friend O'Brien. Yes. And um, the next day I went to visit a prison, maximum security prison in Liverpool. For my, that was about my poetry. They, they wrote poetry and I was invited to read it and look at it and talk to, I think, I don't know, 10, 12 prisoners. They were from Ireland, they were from England, from Wales, uh, you know, all. and we all hit it off. <laughs> and we, I'm from a very uh, immigrant background, mean streets in upstate New York, uh, tough inner city, and I knew who they were and they recognized me. The, the street kid in me never has um, left me. Yes. And I could relate to them e easily. And at one point in the conversation, we were talking about poetry, but at one point in the conversation, I said, do any of you know, are you dyslexic? And I don't know if you get tested here or have you had trouble learning how to read? 
I would say maybe there were 14 people. I would say two thirds of them raised their hand. Yes. I was stunned. Yeah. They either had been tested or all had that struggle learning. And most of them gave up on themselves. Yeah. Most of them gave up that it was just too much already with all the other hills they had to climb, not knowing how to read, not being part of society, having all those doors closed to them. Crime was uh, a route, probably out of anger, the opposite of compassion. Yeah. It was so moving. I, I, I don't, of all the places I went to visit, the, the, all the LD dyslexia um, conferences and all that, I don't know if I was ever quite as moved as that because it's like everyone all at once recognized. And I was, wasn't brought there for the dyslexia. Yeah. But all, all recognized what that was about. So Steve is, um, he is the founder of the Dyslexia Foundation, which this pod is, is uh, built to support. And he was telling me, we do, as you, you, uh, you chaps do in, in America, unfortunately, we, we have a, a real problem with homelessness. And those stats bear out for the homeless as well. About two thirds of people who are homeless in the UK are dyslexic or have a crippling learning difficulty, which obviously contributes. Really? Yes. Absolutely. Oh my God, I didn't know that. What what a noble fellow. God, what a, what a great thing you're doing. I didn't know that. I I um, remember vividly, you know, being in class with people and I knew they were struggling and, and potentially they were struggling with learning or difficulties. They were behind and, and were deeply frustrated and would be sent out of class and they would be disruptive because on top of, you know, potentially, you know, tumultuous home lives, as, as some of the people I shared them, um, you know, I shared my schooling with, they were, they were infuriated that they, they weren't getting it like everybody else. They were, you know, sad and anxious and, and my heart still breaks for them. Well, it's, it's interesting. I, I remember going to a couple of schools where the students had come from public schools where they were failing and doing being, and also feeling bullied and cast aside and, Suddenly, they were among their own kind, if I if you could put it that way, and they felt at home, and they didn't feel singled out. But there was a sadness that they carried around with them. There was a, a feeling, being made young to feel different and apart is a lifelong struggle. It just never goes away. And it's this thing we were talking about. You mentioned this ability to have any real self-appreciation. I think that the motivation behind all my writing is just that, <laughs> that I, I want to prove to myself that whatever I feel and whatever, whatever I can manage to say is of some worth because the forces, the dark forces that believe otherwise is something that never go, goes away. Absolutely. I know that feeling. Imposter syndrome, certainly, I, that's something I... I, I suffer from you. You do. You you, you too. I, uh, dysle dyslexia. Yes. Yeah. No. Yeah. Sorry. I, I should say. Yeah. I'm I'm dyslexic, and it was a real struggle. Uh, I was I was born half deaf as well. So for me, it was marrying phonetics. So you know that this that these sounds equal these scratches on paper. I could not wrap my brain around um, around that. It was through creativity. I would draw pictures in order to associate a sound with with words through pictures. That's what helped me. And I'd have, I'd have to be taken out of class from about six, seven or eight and sort of, you know, repetition drilling the, uh, the start, start of words 
it, thankfully, it's not as bad as it was. I, I It's more in my writing, you know, so I miss out connectives like but and to and, and the and that and things like that. But it's numbers, which now are the um, big thing for me. Numbers are a constant source of misery for me. Well, that's quite a story. And, and um, I'm sure that's behind what you're doing now. And um, so you're, 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 you're doing very good things then. It's very necessary what you're doing. Well, I think it comes back to what you say about compassion and empathy. Obviously, I need both as, a, as an actor, as a creative person, in order to do my job properly. Even with people that you might find nefarious or, or, or that you might believe to be a, um, you know, a bad person, if such a thing exists, you have to find a way to compassionately and, and, and empathetically understand them or else you just deliver something which is a stereotype or a cliche or, or, or not nuanced uh, in any way. You know, it's, it's, it's funny, I was, I was reading the um, description on uh, the writer's studio and, and it struck me as being very similar to a drama school prospectus. I don't know if you've ever seen a drama school prospectus. The aims that you have on, on the website is, is about encouraging writers to engage with the community, to, to know thyself, you know, to, to understand the, your, your emotions and develop the craft of writing. And you just need to change a couple of words there and, and you've got an acting prospectus. And I just found that really interesting that your students will go there to develop a craft with their talent. We have someone who's studying with us who also is Roman from Rome and also came here to study acting at a, a studio. And he pointed out that there were great similarities, that uh, our emphasis on creating a persona or a mask behind which you, um, you, you know, the Oscar Wilde idea that you give someone a mask and they will tell the truth. And so the same thing, uh, the, the idea of the school is that you find a persona, someone else's persona, another writer's persona to tell your story. And it, it allows you to distance yourself from your own lack of self-esteem, maybe, and look at yourself with some degree of compassion. So we've come full circle now. <laughs> yeah. Because it isn't easy to feel that for yourself. And you can't feel it for others if you can't feel it for yourself. This gentleman is now starting a branch all on his own in Rome of the school. Wow. Well, it, I, I guess that sort of Stanislavskian idea of like the magic if. So I'm not this person, but if I was that person, then this is how I behave. This is how I do this. And, and that's it. That's what you're talking about, the mask. Because, I've, you know, I remember that from your book, that idea. As soon as um, I could imagine myself as an author trying to write about this poem, then it's actually close to me, but also separate from me. There's a duality there, which is so, so fascinating. Well, I was so busy in, in the beginning surviving my surroundings that I couldn't manufacture any sympathy. But when I actually wanted to write, certain writers like Hemingway, Walker Percy, allowed me to look at my life through their eyes and I could see some drama, I could see a story in it, I could even see some sympathy for the, for the main character. And without that, I wasn't able to do it. But I've been doing some version of that all my life. Our, our name comes from the actor studio, the writer's studio. Not because I knew that much about the actor studio or anything at all, but it seemed appropriate somehow. Because also the, the Stanislavski is based on the Socratic method and I always naturally use that. I ask students questions constantly 
as a way of inspiring them to ask themselves questions. Yes. Why are they doing this? What do they think it will amount to? How will it be of any benefit to anyone else? You ask enough questions and people start asking themselves, it becomes part of their writing process. That is so, so fascinating. So for anyone who doesn't know, the Actors Studio, legendary um, drama school or place for classes for some of the most amazing actors of American actors of the 20th century, Paul Newman went there uh, to class, Al Pacino, for example. Marilyn Monroe. Monroe. Right, Dustin Hoffman. Dustin Hoffman. Lee Strasberg was a, a legendary teacher and, and acting coach, and he's actually in Godfather 2. Um, he plays uh, the Jewish gangster that uh, Michael Corleone gets, gets into bed with business-wise. So, uh, wow, the connection's everywhere. The writer's studio, the actor's studio. You mentioned Walker Percy and you talk about in your book the effect of the movie goer. You, you mentioned it, it, it briefly, but you sort of say it's a seminal a seminal book for you. I, I love talking to people about books uh, that change people's lives. And why was it the movie goer changed your life? Well, it's funny. When, when writing the book I, I'm, I'm working on, I gave a whole chapter to that. I, I didn't understand it at the time. I was 16. I was in a supermarket waiting for my mother to finish having her hair done uh, next door. <laughs> And I, the last thing I, in the world I wanted to do was look for books. I hated reading and avoided it. And I looked through this, um, one of these kiosks next to the cashier, and there was this book with all these, the, the cover attracted me, and, and all these different faces of the same man that looked troubled. The Milton Glaser um, illustration cover, and brilliant. And I picked it up because of the cover, and I started reading a couple pages, and I fell in love with the first-person persona voice. And um, I read the book straight through, the first book I ever read straight through, a novel. And it took me a while, but I, I did. And I, the writer, Walker Percy, was a trained psychiatrist, and he was, in the, he was hospitalized with consumption. And he had to find something to do, and he wrote this book. And he looked at, it's about this guy saving his cousin who's suicidal and falling in love with her. Yes. But the voice is such regard and affection and quiet celebration of everything he writes about and sees. He has no outside opinion of himself. There's the compassion in the book and, and the warmth of that first person voice made me want to be his friend wanted to never leave that voice, wanted to hear that voice. And I went from, I went on a search. When the book was done, I was sad. And I went for other voices like that and found it in literature. Yeah. And uh, I, it allowed me to afford a degree of respect and compassion, empathy for myself, be, um, that made me really at that point decide to, I was a painter at that point and the turn to writing. So that book was pivotal for me. Yeah. Did you feel that sense of sadness at having to say goodbye to the, uh, the protagonist? He was like my best friend. I, I wanted to see the whole world through his eyes. I love movies. He loved movies. Uh, you know, the making, uh, Big things out of little things. After work, he, he was in finance or something, and that wasn't what he cared about. And afterwards, he'd go to in New Orleans, he'd sit in the playground and open up the newspaper and look through the movie section and decide which movie to see that night. He had various girlfriends, but nothing serious. 
And the, um, for him, the excitement was which fantasy, which movie yeah. to see that night. And um, I always love sitting on a swing in a playground, doing that little ritual seemed perfect for me. Yeah. Well, I need to read it. You'll, you'll, you'll enjoy it. And it, it could be movies, it could be music, it could be everything. Yeah. And it's interesting that you, you have hearing issues and yet what you love is music. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And the musicality of the voice as well. Because I couldn't read until later on, I, I had many audiobooks on tape and I listened to them every night before I went to sleep. So again, it's that affirmation, you know, I was listening to War and Peace and the Gothic romantic novels. So I couldn't be stupid. It was just that, you know, these these scratch marks that we've attributed meaning to, you know, was, was so difficult at that time for me to understand. I would love to take it back to your students. Do you encourage them to perform their poems? In my classes, poets and fiction writers are in the same class. And I teach the master class, and they're in the school a couple of years to get into it. Um, and they're, by the time they get into my class, they're already confirmed writers. There's no taking that away from them. So every time they bring, let's say, a poem in or a story or whatever, someone else reads it. They'll read someone else's, but they won't read their own. Right. As a way of hearing it read out loud, it, it's just beneficial somehow. By remote, when we were on the computer, I said, you could read your own. We don't have to. And they all insisted on having someone else read it. They, they, they like hearing it through someone else's eyes and voice and um, because it's someone else's voice. Yes. I do encourage them to read later versions or drafts out loud. I, I do because it is a performance. Yes. You know, writing is a performance. You're turning your story into something that's supposed to be meaningful to someone else. It, it has to have some kind of consequence or impact. And so in a way that you can imagine how they would react by hearing it. How do you think being dyslexic has affected you as a teacher? Probably the compassion. I identify with each and every one of them. And I, um, you know, coming up, I went to these writing schools and I found Frankly, most of my teachers weren't very compassionate. Mm. They were doing a job, and some of them resented the fact that they had to teach to make a living. And very few of them really, really enjoyed it. There were those that did, and they were very inspiring. But very few of them actually, you, you would study with a, a, someone in their 60s, and you would be in your early 20s, and they would tell you, what they did to make something work. And if you were lucky, because they were often very gifted, you were 40 years away from being able to do that, or maybe 20 years away from understanding it. They, what they didn't do was remember back to when they were your age and to try to temper and manipulate what they were saying to so it would be understandable to someone so much younger. And that's one of the first, I would go home and try to interpret what they were saying and try to make it understandable to myself. And sometimes I would be successful and often not. So one of the things we do is try to identify a stage of development and then try to speak to who's listening and say it in a way that's going to be of some help. Your book of poems, 2007, Failure. Obviously, this, this podcast is called Words Fail Me, and 
we've found with all of the guests we've had on, I've said this before, but I, it's always worth saying again, that we all have, as dyslexics, um, a relationship to failure. And everyone, I believe, that I've spoken to on this pod has a healthy relationship to failure, that it's necessary you know, to be creative or to be effective. I've spoken to politicians and businessmen and, and another author. I would love to hear about your relationship to failure. Well, my most successful book is called Failure. Yes, yeah. Everybody told me not to call it that. There's only one person who liked the fact that I was going to title this book of poems Failure, and that was my wife. And she encouraged me. She, she's a sculptor, an artist. And she said, use it. And she was right. Everyone else feared that, you know, you were giving the reviewers uh, an easy joke. This book isn't as a failure as he may think it is. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I was writing mostly about my father's failures. I didn't see myself as writing about my own. I'm trying to remember now if I even knew I was this. I think I did by that time. It, it was published in 2007, I think, yes. But I grew up, my father failed at one business after another. He was a janitor in a night shift in the first five years of my life because he had lost the business and had to move into my mother's mother's house in the inner city and lived, stayed there for the next 20 years. So I was writing about his failures, about his um, uh, almost devotion to failure, that even... Even when he was successful, he would manage to pluck failure from, from the rooms of success. He almost had a formula for it. And I watched that, and I watched the effect on my mother and on myself. And because the people around you sometimes pay a larger price than you yourself do. Yeah. You're so busy rationalizing and justifying everything. So I didn't really understand that on some level I was also writing about my own. Yeah. The, my dyslexia was three years later. It didn't come out until three years late, or 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 four years later. We all um, experience failure to one. You know, uh, you know. In my case, uh, there have been times on stage where I know I I I've failed miserably and, and fallen on my face, or any number of the the things I've tried creatively and they just haven't come off. And that helps me to become better. And I, and I was just wondering about how you perceive failure as, as a necessary sort of feature on, on the way to succeeding in anything. Well, I, I think without understanding or realizing it, my relationship with failure allowed me to become successful. Yes. That I work, I write so many drafts of almost every poem, assuming that the first 30, 50, 60 of them are going, not going to work, that I'm just so persistent that I eventually, at least in, in the ones I publish, reach fruition. Yes. My tolerance for failure, for disappointment, has allowed me to overcome my own sense of exasperation and despair. One of the things I find in so many of my students and students in the school is that they some can't can't do that. They they find it very hard to tolerate the disappointment of a failed draft, a version, and or of someone's opinion that's anything less than splendid. Yeah, and give up. Where I grew up with the one thing about my father that was maybe more than one thing that was in heartening 
was the fact that he never gave up. He um, would fail at one thing and go to another. He uh, indefatigable, and I watched that. And he always went at everything with a sense of excitement. And this little immigrant kid who came here at the age of six without speaking a word of English, a tough kid from a Russian Jewish immigrant with nothing and four brothers following his lead with no education, somehow managed to set records in upstate New York with his failures. So you could almost say turn failure into a success because people were always fascinated by him. So I, you know, modeled myself after him and wasn't afraid to take things on. I mean, I'm sure that when I tried to talk a, a, a chairman at, at, at NYU into starting a writing program, came in off the streets, managed to charm his depressed secretary. He, he, he said the only reason he gave me an appointment is that he wanted to see the guy who managed to get an appointment from his secretary and didn't give anyone. <laughs> and I convinced him that he was in the middle of Greenwich Village and that he should at least have one writing class. So, yes, there was all that failure, but there was something also notable about his feeling of that he'll overcome. And I think I used that in my work to try to turn, I mean, many, many failed novels, for instance, went into my novel in verse <laughs> that I wrote about the Holocaust in San Francisco and called The Wherewithal. 25 years of failed novels and stories and poems went into uh, probably my best book. So there's that part of me that doesn't give up, um, that overcomes my disappointment that I probably saw in his attitude. Yeah. Well, what I would love to ask you now, Philip, is advice you would give to young dyslexics or people who've been newly diagnosed or those who, who, like yourself, came, came later to an understanding of being dyslexic? Well, just what I just said. I think just be determined to not give up. If they could see the very fabric of their disappointment, of the hurdle they have to overcome as a, as a kind of source of inspiration, if they can take their own negative feelings towards themselves and turn it into creative inspiration, and there is a way of doing it, then that could lead to success. That if they, you can't succumb to disappointment or despair. And we have all, we all have shitbirds sitting perched on our shoulders telling us that we're never going to amount to anything and don't even try. But if they're persistent enough, and if they can find the wherewithal to do that, then that'll lead to success. Well, Philip, thank you. That is the perfect note for us to end on. So I want to thank you for giving us your time and speaking so eloquently about a myriad of subjects that I threw at you. So thank you. I enjoyed it, Jude. Thank you. You've been listening to Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia with me, Jude Monk-McGowan. My guest today was the poet, Philip Schultz. There are more conversations in this series. Just search Words Fail Me, a podcast about thriving with dyslexia, and subscribe wherever you find podcasts. And if you want to support a charity or access its many services, go to dyslexia-help.org. <laughs>